All right. All right. Well, we are live. My guest today, Rob, we had a little bit of issues. If you're watching this on the live stream on the video, you know we're a little bit, well, we're behind, but that's all right. This plane's taken off and we're uh, we're going to have a great show. So I've watched Rob now for quite a while. Uh, watched him from afar at first. During that time, I witnessed like this amazing takeoff, right? And then a low point. We're going to talk about that with his first scaffolding company. Um, but it was incredible to watch Rob Lewis. That's my guest today. Rob Lewis, welcome to the show. Incredible to watch him bounce back, pivot, and in that pivot, help his wife open up her own business, a crystal shop, which is a really cool business in and of itself. A lot of neat things to talk about there. But he did, did all this while experiencing kind of that big blow uh, of what should have been versus what happened. So I'm happy to say that Rob's not one to settle. We made it to the show. He made it through that time. He's got another company he's about to launch or is launching that we're going to talk about. We're going to share those stories with you today. Rob, welcome. After about 41 minutes, here we are. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for your patience on that, man. I really appreciate you. Yeah. It's definitely so you've, a day. <laughs> yeah, you've had a day, but uh, you know, yeah. we all have those days, right? So uh, I just want to give a shout out right out of the gate to our producer, Chris, from castahead.net. He does a great job. He was... Uh, Guiding us both through, uh, both through the, uh, the little stress and the, the blood pressure blips that raise up as time goes along. So here we are going to have a great show. Um, so Rob, so like, how does somebody get into the scaffolding business and why, like, what, what's your jam on scaffolding? It was actually interesting. Um, I tripped into it really. Uh, it was something I, I didn't even really know existed in the manner that it does. But um, I had just come off a, a pretty significant failure on a construction equipment business that I owned. And um, I just went into the scaffold company looking for an inside sales position. And I was like, look, you know, great sales. They didn't have outside sales. So I was like, all right, you know, I'll take inside sales. Um, as soon as I got into scaffolding, I immediately fell in love with it. It was like, um, so I have ADHD and then so my attention span kind of goes off, but um for me, it was the one thing that drew back in because it was like building Legos for adults. And so you essentially sit down, you design a scaffold around a building, go off drawings, you build it on paper, then you, you get to watch it come to fruition. And so it was the coolest thing I've ever done as an adult. And um, so as soon as I got in, I, I fell in love with the business. I mean, it, it's just something that has always you know, drawn my attention. Plus, you're part of every single project for the life of the building. And so you you always have this kind of like trophy after you're done where you're like, I was part of that. Yeah, 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 very cool. Actually, just as you're telling that story, I was reminded, so way back in the day, right out of high school, I worked in construction. It was like really the the only part of a couple years of my life, adult life, where I was on a W-2 working for somebody. And uh, we got caught up on the roof. I was in roofing construction and I got caught up on the roof uh, without scaffolding around because the uh, stucco crew was behind. So we had to be lanyard off. We got stuck in this ice storm. I ended up sliding off the roof, hanging from the secure safety devices. So like, I really wish there were pro scaffolders back then because that was like, that was a very scary moment as you could imagine. Um, but thankfully I had my safety gear on and I'm here all these years later to talk about it. So, so you fell into it. Um, I kind of forgot about the the construction equipment business that you talked about. That was kind of neat. Maybe we'll come back to that. But so you got in, 
you were good at sales, you saw an opportunity, you're like, hey, I can help blow this up. So you start building up this company, uh, your first scaffolding business to a point where you've scaled it. What were some things you learned along the way scaling it? And then let's get to, you get this offer. Yeah. So, um, so that's part of what I do best is I build companies. Um, my, my viewpoint on companies is I dissect it from a point where nobody else looks at it, where, okay, what are we doing differently? Why is it, you know, like I, I've come into a couple of different companies and take them over to, you know, in dead territories and built them up. And that was what really helped me solidify my, my place in scaffolding was the same thing. I took a, a company from, I think we were doing about 3 million, brought up to five or 6 million. And then the second one, um, the territory I'd taken over was doing 840,000 a year. We brought it up to almost 5 million. And so when we launched our company, I did the same thing. I'm like, I looked at the industry. I'm like, what is missing? What is the one thing that everybody complains about about scaffold companies? And the biggest two were service and responsiveness. And so they, um, the service lacks because, I mean, it takes forever for, for somebody to quote from a scaffold company. And then the responsiveness is it takes three weeks for a company to come in, quote it, and then build a project if you need it on an emergency basis. And that's more inefficiency in the industry. So we dissected the entire industry as a whole. And we're like, okay, how do we fix that? What does that mean for us if we fix that? And then how do we sell that? Right? Like, how do we go into the contractors? And like, hey, look, this is what we do. This is how we're going to be different. And then we had to back it up. So as we started to build the company, you know, that that's exactly what we built it on with service and responsiveness. And because we did it that way, we started growing, you know, 50% quarter over quarter, five straight quarters. And in our third quarter was when, you know, United Rentals caught attention and was like, wait, hey, you know, you guys are, you know, filling a void that we have right now, which was by design. I mean, we built the company specifically for acquisition. So um, I've dissected their business model for the last 20 years. When they stepped out of their business model, I knew that we'd capitalize on it. And so we built peak specifically for acquisition by United Rentals. That's very smart. So was it simply, and and by the way, if you're listening to this, if you don't know who United Rentals is, you're going to know now. It's kind of like, I've never seen like our friend Jessica Stroud, right? She has this gorgeous pink Jeep Wrangler, right? And, or Jeep Wrangler, like the four-door one. I think it's still called a Wrangler. But like, if you've never seen a pink Jeep. Yeah. Now that you've now that I've said it and you've heard it, you're going to see pink jeeps all over the place. United <laughs> Rentals, you go you go by any like major construction project in your town, you're going to see the blue and white sticker, right? Yeah. Um, you'll see it now. That's a big, big company. They're they're a multinational company, correct? Yeah. So they're um they're yeah. a twenty billion dollar publicly traded company with just under a, just under twelve hundred locations, about eighteen thousand employees. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, I love the fact that you said we're going to build a company for acquisition, right? Because so many people, like they just get into their business and they're happy to be their own boss, right? Then they become this chief everything officer that's just running around like hating life because they realize they've invested so heavily into this business that they're kind of back to just having a job, but they're responsible for the taxes, the payroll, the light, the power, the AC, uh, you know, they're responsible for all the things, but they don't really own the business. The business owns them. So I love how you built for acquisition. You identified 
that service responsiveness. But then I think the smarter thing is you, you said, do people even care about this? You know, do people care that your company addresses these voids? So those voids, again, were the service and the responsiveness. And was there a second one? The service and responsiveness was the biggest thing that we went after. Safety is always our primary. So um, like for scaffolding, I mean, unfortunately, one small mistake and somebody dies. So we, you know, that's always going to be our number one focus. But um, the service and responsiveness was another one. Could we bring those in and keep that safety aspect, you know, at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. Really smart. I mean, there was a former life for me as well. Um, you know, I worked for a representative mattress company, large company, and we always had a problem with, it wasn't a big problem, but it was a problem with like the bags and the mattresses rip and you get these rips and tears and scuffs and little rub marks in the shipping handling process. And customers always said, you know, hey, you need thicker bags. You need to do this. And the reality of it is addressing that problem just by giving new product and replacing it was a cheaper cost than putting a brand new bag on the 98% of product that didn't get damaged, right? But 100% of product would have a new increased cost. Nobody wanted to pay the new increased cost, right? Nobody, nobody cared about that problem big enough to pay the price. So really smart how you approach the opportunity in the market to say, hey, this is where the void is. Will people pay for it? Right? Like that's, well, I think a lot of people miss that when they go out with a new service offering, a new product, or even a new business. It's why there's just not clarity on where the voids in the marketplace are. So, all right. So we built this for acquisition. You get an offer, but the offer never came through. Like it never landed. So what happened there? So we, um, we, when they came in the first time, we actually thought they were coming in to have us do labor for them. And so we were kind of excited because we were already doing labor for the largest scaffolding company in the industry in Orlando. And so when they came in, they came into our office. We literally just signed the lease on our office. We, um, the day before, we were scrambling, putting furniture in the office so that we could have this meeting with them. And they show up. And the first thing they said to us is like, we want to buy you guys. And so we put together kind of a... Um, Kind of a synopsis, like I mean, like a basic business plan, then something showing like what we've done, what we're planning on doing, what our you know what our growth our growth opportunity was, and then we swung for the fence. I mean, I told them I wanted ten million dollars. Um, they laughed at us, which was you know I, I expected, um, but they came in at about three point six million, and um, we went through four months of due diligence with them, and toward the end of it, it shined a light on some cracks on our own team, and. Um, the three partners, uh, we just, we weren't getting along very well. Um, mm. that's probably an understatement. Um, but we were at the point now where it was like, all right, let's just get through this sale. So that way we can, you know, go on our, in our own direction and figure out what we're going to do. Right. So my whole goal at that point, cause I really didn't want to sell the company. I thought we were too early. I mean, my, my overall business plan was between two and three years for acquisition, which would have netted us between 15 and $20 million. And at this point, you know, we were at 3.6. And so I felt like we were really losing a lot by going into the sale. But at the same time, there were so many cracks in our partnership. There was no, really no salvaging that. So just before the sale was supposed to close, one of my business partners um, had a uh, citizenship issue and that came to light. And 
and it changed the deal they wanted. Instead, because instead of getting three partners, they were only getting two now because they couldn't bring the third partner on without sponsoring him. They couldn't get sponsorship, and so they wanted to change our earnout. So they're putting a lot more of the money on the backside of it. And when I looked at the overall deal, Mike, I'll make more money by continuing to operate my company than I would by selling. And so for me at that point, it was like, okay, well, can we salvage the partnership? And if not, can one of us buy out the other so that way we, you know, can make this whole. After then, so the very next day after the deal essentially fell through, I mean, the sale, the sale was still technically on until the point where we, you know, opted that we weren't going to go with the earnout. And so we went back into the office and, and I asked him, like, what's our clear path forward? What do we do? Like, how can we salvage this company? How can we move forward? And one of my business partners looks at me and says, I want to scale down. And <laughs> anybody that knows me knows that does not work for my personality. Um, that's, I the want, opposite, that's the opposite way. Yeah. I want big, I want bigger and I want best. And um, so I, I told him like, that doesn't work. You know, that for one, we had 67 families at that point to feed. And so scaling down, I mean, we're going to fail those families. And that, that's not a thing for me. That's never. And then secondary was we had obligations on our own part contractually where if we had scaled down, you know, we could have been subject to liquidity to damages. We could have been subject to, you know, like failure in credit. Like, I mean, there could have, there were a lot of things, you know, re repercussions that would have happened. And so we went through about four different rounds of I'm going to buy you out. You're going to buy me out. Um, we actually brought in a couple of different investors who looked at our books and one of them was pretty serious. And then that was when I found out they, they had some other issues. Like they had a loan that I didn't know about, they had some debt they were holding that I didn't know about. And so finally I called Jessica Dennehy and I'm like, I need out. <laughs> like, I just want out of it. Um, I was willing to walk away for free at that point. Um, I set apart, you know, like a, uh, you know, we structured a buyout and where I basically walked away from the company for $75,000. And, uh, and I would have done it all day long. I mean, I, again, I was, I was ready to walk away for free because at that point you, I already had the lessons in place. I already had everything, the bones, everything that I needed to be able to structure this and start all over again. And, you know, maybe it might've been slower. Maybe it might've been faster. I, I don't know. But, um, but at that point I knew the only way for me to, to really get to where I need to get to was to walk away from the deal. And, um, United eventually did buy the company, but after I exited that's been a train wreck to watch. So that's, uh, that's, that's been interesting. <laughs> yeah. So United did go back and buy it. I would imagine yes. at a lower price because they automatically mm -hmm. didn't get you. And yeah. yeah so, so now they, they bought a headache really is what it sounds like. Yeah, they like. bought the company for purchase of assets only. So basically my partners made no money from it. And Oh, that's the worst way to do a deal. Yeah. I, I mean, again, yeah, I, yeah. I was offering them at the point, I think, um, at the top one, we offered 500,000 each. And then I went down to 250,000 each when I figured out the debt. And then yeah. at that point, it was like, it just, I could create it all over again for half of what I would have paid them. And, um, and, and that's what we're doing now. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, purchase of assets. I mean, it's always good if you can, you know, get your, you know, you, you want to get your equipment, the, the, the tangible things paid for, but, by and large, those things depreciate in value. You get paid market rate for them. I guess as, as of this recording of this episode, we're in, we're in an anomaly of where things are overpriced almost everywhere, but that's yeah. going to end. So it's not really a great way to structure a deal. I mean, I suppose for those listening, it really the big takeaway here, we, I'll go back to when you, when you shot the first offer out at 10 million, 
you know, um, you, you shot that out because you kind of broke the rule of, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy it and sell it. Right. Like in negotiating, like you don't, you shouldn't take both sides. You, you're either the buyer or you're the seller. And often when you do both sides, you end up negotiating against yourself, but you hedge that when you say, well, I'll take 10 million bucks. And then, and then you quickly get down to brass tacks. Right. I mean, right. My my guess is there wasn't a lot of back and forth from ten million to three and a half, right? No, none. Yeah, it, it, they pretty much came <laughs> right in. Um, they originally they thought we were only a million dollar company, and so right. when they were when they were planning to make their offer, and we started going through, um, we put them in touch with Easier, did our accounting, and um, so we put them in touch with Trevor and Kale and, and the Easier team, and said, you know, like these are our books, this is what we do, these are our numbers, they speak for themselves. And so yep. when they went through our numbers, they went from a million to, you know, it was 3 million and we kept our AR. So it was like basically 3.6. Um, but then we ended up, you know, we ran up some debt on the assets, which ended up, you know, it would have been significantly less, but they had more on the earn out that we would. So it was structured yeah. well enough to where we would have walked away over three years. I would have made about 1.9, maybe give or take. Mm. And um, yeah. So you you went from about seven hundred fifty thousand a year to seventy five one time. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, that was a tough pill to swallow because it was like we had a pool picked out, we had a new car picked out, you know, like we going to pick up all my debt. I'm like started looking at yep. you know like different programs and stuff. Like, okay, how do I elevate myself? Um, and then you come to the quick reality, like, oh, we're broke again. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So we opened the crystal shop with you know like basically half of the money we ended up bought i bought my wife a, a car and you know that was like um one of her dream cars so i was like look she needs to get something out of this because she's not getting her pool so um, right right so we bought the car and then we spent the rest of the money building the crystal shop and um yeah and that was interesting too the day we opened we actually had 25 dollars left in our account and mm. so huge leap of faith um that was, I, and we joked about it. We're like, all right, if, if nobody comes in today and nobody buys from us, like we're eating ramen noodles tonight. And um, right. the first day we made, you know, 12, 1300 bucks, something like that. And then, right. uh, and now, you know, we've got almost a million dollars in inventory paid off. So, I mean, it, it's been, but we've poured all of our money back in. I learned that lesson through peak was we started running up some debt and really it, it was getting unmanageable. And so when we got the crystal shop, that's when we said, we're like, we're going to, we're going to operate, operate this, but we're going to bootstrap it the same way that we did in the company, except for instead of taking money out of the company, we wrapped everything back, you know, like back into it. Right. Right. Yeah. Very smart. So the crystal shop, right? Like, obviously, you know what it is. It's your business. It's your wife's business. Um, and kudos to your wife. I mean, obviously you guys, I'm going to say, obviously, I'm assuming that you have a powerful relationship because you went through a lot of stress. You know, you mentioned like, hey, she's going to get something out of this for being by my side um, with, you know, buying the car. And then, you know, you open this crystal shop up. So for those watching, for those listening, so this is like a legit crystal shop. And you were telling me you source some of your stuff from like the far reaches of the world. Um, so what, who, who's the person that's walking into your crystal shop and buying these items from you? What are they getting? So there, there's a, a few different facets of that. It's um, so on the on the crystal shop itself, like in the in the shop, the, our demographic is about seventy five percent walk in, usually fifteen to twenty one year old, 
Um, and then 25% is crystal buyers. So the younger group buys mostly bracelets, pendants, tumbles, you know, that under $30, you know, kind of like price range. Mm-hmm. And then the crystal buyers will go anywhere from, you know, $10 up to, we've got pieces in there for $12,000, but we do wow. source everything directly from where it comes from. So I buy from Indonesia, Pakistan, Mexico, Madagascar, uh, India. Um, and I know I'm missing a few in there, but, um, but we deal a lot with it. The actual craftsmen in those countries that they'll go into the mines, pull the material out, and then they'll, you know, carve it, shape it, polish it, and then send it to us. And, and it, one, it allows us to keep authenticity, but it also allows right. us to keep, like our, you know, it, the margins are, are better that way because we're dealing directly. There's no middlemen. There's no, and yeah, you know, shipping's not as cheap as it could be, but. But I, but I would imagine you're getting pieces that your competition, I don't even know who your competition is. Is there like a national competitor for crystal and gem shops? There's not. Um, it's it's okay. kind of an interesting market because we have other crystal shops locally, but we're not really competitors. Like we're all friends. So right. we end up buying from each other. All right. Seems like we have a little bit of an issue with Rob. Rob's had a heck of a day. He's been a trooper to try to make it, uh, get through this show. Um, don't blame them at all. So we'll, I'm going to just kind of give a little bit of a summary of what we were going to cover, and then we'll see if Rob can get back on. And uh, if not, we'll just wrap up the show that way. But um, but anyway, like this crystal shop that Rob has, very, very interesting business. Like, like he was sharing, he sources these items from all different parts of the world, buys them direct. So really the experience there is he gets to show his customers things that you wouldn't see in other shops because of his direct connection. So that's very, very unique. Um, it, it was very cool to see them open that shop up amidst the ashes. And you heard him say, I mean, you know, like literal ashes. I don't think he would think that's an exaggeration that I'm saying it that way from the, the, the way the scaffolding business wrapped up his first one. Um, but I wanted to bring Rob on because this is a guy who does persevere. Um, so they built a crystal shop that's been going very, very well. They're very happy with the success of that. But this new company, Alpha Scaffolding, um, that he's launching, um, he's really excited about. Looks like he's got all the operational procedural stuff in place and is very excited. And that's what, what I wanted to really talk about next with Rob was, was bringing, uh, sharing with you um, the story of Alpha Scaffolding Company, because that's kind of like rising out of the ashes, the phoenix, if you will. Uh, didn't give up on his dreams knows he can bring something to the market that has value, fills a niche. And this one, he is definitely building for acquisition. And there's no doubt in my mind that he'll see that happen uh, because he's learned, right? He's learned the lessons, unfortunately, the hard way, which in entrepreneurship uh, journeys that we all walk and we all have, it seems that's the only way to learn uh, at times is the hard way. Um, but uh, this is this is a guy that really is going to get it done. and. Uh, I have no doubt about that. So what we'll do is we'll just plan to have, um, there's Rob having some big ticket life moments, right? We always talk about life and business on your terms around here. He's a big uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan. Uh, down the road, we'll have Rob back on and we can um, get him to share uh, the success of Alpha that he'll have experienced by the time he can get back on the show. Um, there's Rob with Mark Zalmanoff, uh, another fellow member of Apex. Some of the names that he was referencing, Jessica Dennehy, 
Kale Goodman, Trevor Kale, um, all great Apex people that were all in a network together. That's another recipe for success in life, right? Is, you know, do life with people that get you, get in your own herd of people. Obviously, I've, I'm very pro uh, Apex Entourage. Uh, join the Apex.com. If you want a personal intro, I'll make it to the right people that can uh, get you connected. But be with people that get you. That is a key ingredient for success. And right there were Rob and Mark hanging out at uh, looks like a Cowboys Buccaneers game. I know Mark is a Cowboys fan. Rob is a Tampa Bay fan where he lives. Um, there he's, uh, looks like he's out, out front of the Florida Gators bus, but, uh, obviously living life on his own terms, doing business on his own terms, not, not one to, um, uh, just lay down and say, oh, well, you know, I failed. I can't have success here. He's gone back at it a second time. And there's no doubt in my mind that Rob's going to have success, uh, with it. So with that said, we're going to look to wrap it up. I appreciate you sticking, um, stick it in on this one. Um, you know, it just, uh, just kind of how things go. Um, but, uh, really appreciate you following the show, the big ticket life. We wanted to get this one off because consistency does equal success in life. Right. And I wanted to keep the schedule. So you heard a couple really great things at the beginning of the show about building a company, building for acquisition, uh, finding that void in the marketplace, testing the marketplace to make sure it could be served. We talked about structuring an offer and, um, you know, we'll pick up with Rob in the future, but I really appreciate you guys um, tuning in with us this far and we'll see you next week on The Big Ticket Life. Take care. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Big Ticket Life. You've heard from another amazing guest living their own big ticket life and now it's time to live yours. First, I'd love for you to take me up on my free gift to you. Find your gift at gift.thebigticketlife.live. That's gift.thebigticketlife.live. See, all your life you've been told what is and what isn't possible by the loudest voices from the cheapest seats. It's time to finally do life and business on your terms. Sure, you've heard similar things, but without clarity on what can be done, it's easy to have your customers, employees, maybe even partners, and your spouse keep you from truly living a big ticket life. My big ticket methods shift you into that investor seat in your business, away from commodity and away from competition into a market of one so you can finally live your own big ticket life. So my gift to you is for you to book your discovery call today where we'll uncover first the Chivo behaviors, those chief everything officer behaviors that hold you back and why moving into the investor seat in your own business is critical. Two, we'll uncover the premium position that's up for grabs right now in your market that you're missing out on. And three, which big ticket methodologies are just waiting to be dropped into your business to explode your sales and profits. So again, thanks for listening to this episode. I'd love for you to take action right now. Accept this gift. Book your call. Go to gift.thebigticketlife.live. Again, that's gift.thebigticketlife.live.